Heavenly Father, as, as we come to this topic of liturgy, uh, help us uh, to be captivated this morning uh, by the fact that it is you uh, who initiate uh, everything regarding salvation in our lives. And we see that in our order of service uh, as it begins with your call to us uh, to draw near and worship you. So let us be thankful today for this grace, this amazing saving grace that has been displayed to us uh, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and that work applied to us by your Spirit. Please work in our hearts today. Help us to be fed by your Word. Help us to learn and and truly be in awe of what all you have done in the history of redemption and how that is in many ways uh, reenacted uh, when we gather for worship each week. And so we pray your blessing upon our time. In Christ's name, amen. So, what is liturgy? Now, we hear that word and we might think about, say, Anglicans and very high church uh, kind of order of worship. But we don't have to go there, per se. Okay, um, Liturgy really comes from a Greek root that has to do with minister in the noun form or to minister in the verb form. Uh, you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek at one point, and we called that the Septuagint. Uh, when you look in the Greek Old Testament, uh, the noun and verb from which we get the word liturgy, uh, those are used to translate the Hebrew word that would describe worship, okay, around the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, if you look, just turn to Acts 13, I'll show you an example of where this Greek word shows up in the New Testament. It's um, one example, Acts 13. And verse 2, Acts 13 and verse 2, and it says here, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The word there that's translated worshiping in the ESV is the word from which we get the word liturgy. Okay? It could also be translated there while they were ministering, okay? while they were worshiping the Lord. So liturgy has to do with worship. Now what it's come to mean also, and this is what we'll look at today, is, is how we take the various elements of worship that we've talked about, okay? the the public reading of scripture, the proclamation of the word, public prayer, singing of praise, how we take those and how we structure them, how they're ordered, okay, in a given service on a given Lord's Day, okay? Now, uh, I want to go back to this. Uh, we, we looked at this way back when. Uh, this is in our Book of Church Order, PCABCO, um, but a great definition of public worship. Let me read it. Service of public worship is not merely a gathering of God's children with each other, but before all else, a meeting of the triune God with his chosen people. Okay, so we want to keep that in mind. God is present in public worship not only by virtue of the divine omnipotence, but much more intimately as the faithful covenant Savior. So as we gather each week for worship, we've said this before, but coming back to some things today as we're kind of coming full circle in our class when we meet in there 
each Lord's Day for worship, it is a meeting of the triune God with his chosen people. It is a covenant meeting, the covenant God with his covenant people. And just to go back again and stress, really the core of the covenant, and we're not going to look up each of these verses, okay, is this idea, what O. Palmer Robertson, Old Testament scholar, calls the Emmanuel principle. Okay, we see it with Abraham that God says, I will be uh, a God to you and to your descendants after you. And then we see it fleshed out. Okay, as we go throughout Scripture. And these are just some of the instances. Okay, but this runs like a thread through the Bible and really is the core of God's covenant that I will be their God and they shall be my people. Okay, I will be their God, they shall be my people. God hits that note over and over and over again, stressing okay, that he has chosen a people for himself. He's entered into a covenant with those people Right, And when we gather for worship, we need to be reminded that, that it is a meeting of this covenant God who loves us, who has chosen us, who has called us to himself, and his covenant people. All right. um, now, I want us to look at several scriptures this morning. Okay, And, and why don't you start by turning to Ezekiel? Uh, because what I want to do is, uh, is I want to show you this covenant backdrop as it relates to worship and specifically as how we order what we do in there for worship, okay? And we're going to look at this by what I'm calling a tale of three mountains, right? Where we see what God is doing redemptively and covenantally through history. So the first mountain we're going to look at is Eden. Now, we're not accustomed to thinking of Eden as a mountain or an elevated place because we're, we're used to focusing just on the garden aspect, okay? But let me get there. Uh, Ezekiel 28, and we'll look at 13 to 14 and then verse 16. And really what I want you to see here is just how Eden is referred to. Now, this is a, a passage that primarily has to do with the king of Tyre, uh, but many believe that it also has a double meaning, that what is being compared here is the king of Tyre and his arrogance and his fall because of God's judgment and the arrogance of Satan and his fall because of God's judgment. And this is where Eden will come in. So verse 13 says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Okay, And I'm not going to go through all the, the jewels there. Uh, but then in verse 14 it says, You were an anointed guardian cherub, an angel. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Okay, So there Eden is referred to as a holy mountain and then you see this again in uh, verse 16 where it says, In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Right? So this is mountain number one, okay? Eden, this, this elevated place. And we know the story that Adam and Eve were exiled from the presence of the Lord, 
and that God placed angels, okay, cherubim, to guard the entrance back into the presence of the Lord, back into fellowship with God, back into Eden, we would say. Now why don't you turn to Exodus 24, and I want to show you the, the second of these three mountains, and that is Mount Sinai. And uh, we've talked a good bit about Mount Sinai in this class, but I want to bring out some, some new elements today. Now, what is the significance of this place? As God has redeemed his people from Egypt, as he has brought them to this mountain, why a mountain? What is God teaching them? We know that God descends upon the mountain. The Lord is initiating all of this. He's rescued his people. He descends upon the mountain. Okay, And let me, let me read beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 24. Uh, then he, that is Yahweh, that is the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And then the Lord says, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now let me stop right there. Uh, You see there that God, in speaking, divides his people into three groups, right? There's Moses, there is Aaron, along with Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders, and then there is the rest of the people, right? And God says that Moses alone can come to the summit of the mountain. Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders can ascend the mountain, but they can't come to the summit. So they can ascend the mountain, but they must worship from afar. And then the people are to be at the base of the mountain, and they're not even to touch the mountain, right? Now, what does this mean? What is God teaching them, right? Now, let me say this, that what God is doing is that this, what is going on on Mount Sinai, will become a pattern for worship for God's people as God is teaching them something, and ultimately us as well, about what it is going to take for them to be able to enter back into the presence of God, right? For them to be able to ascend the holy mountain of God from which humanity had been cast and enter back into fellowship with him. And so God will tell them to build a tabernacle and that tabernacle will have how many compartments? It will have three, okay? Corresponding to how God divided up the people on Mount Sinai. The tabernacle will have the innermost chamber, which is the Holy of Holies. And that's going to correspond to that summit of Mount Sinai. It will have the the middle place, which is the holy place. That will correspond to the, the middle of the mountain. And then it will have an outer court. And that is where the people will be allowed to go, in that outer court, where the people were gathered at the foot of the mountain. Right? And in that outer court, there will be an altar that will be placed there for sacrifices. And if you look, let me read verses 3 and 4 of Exodus 24, Moses will build an altar at the base of Mount Sinai, which will correspond to the outer court of the tabernacle. 
Okay. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And what God is doing to teach them is this vertical movement that is on the mountain, okay, with these three places, the summit and the middle and the base of the mountain. What he does in the tabernacle is he takes that vertical and he puts it horizontal, okay, so that it can travel with the people in tent form. But what he's trying to teach them is is how the people can get back into right fellowship with God. And eventually, we'll see that that the temple will be built along the same model, and it will be in what we might call the third of those mountains, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Okay. Now, I want to tie this in to the beginning of our worship service each week, which is a call to worship. Right. At the beginning of Exodus 24, what we see there is God descending upon the mountain and calling his people to worship. That's what he's doing. It says in verse 1, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord. He's calling them to draw near. That's what the call to worship is. The Lord saying, Come to me, draw near, so that you might worship me. And remember, the Lord is initiating it. He's the one who has descended. Right Now turn over to Psalm 24, and we see this, this imagery coming out again in Psalm 24 but it's going to be in the form of two questions that are asked. And this really is the question after humanity was exiled out of Eden. This, this is the question that is before all of humanity. Psalm 24, uh, verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's the question. Who can do it? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place. And then it says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, ultimately, we know that that language cannot point to any son or daughter of Adam. It must point ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate one, who is the one who has clean hands who has a pure heart, who has never lifted up his soul to what is false, has never sworn deceitfully, that it is he ultimately who must ascend into the Holy of Holies, the the summit, we might say, so that God's people can as well, right? Are you tracking with me so far, Christine? Okay, all right. Now, I want you to flip over to Hebrews, okay? Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and the author of Hebrews, he kind of brings these things together. He, he unites all these threads together. Hebrews chapter 9 and, and verse 24. And this is speaking of Christ after his death, after his resurrection, and after his ascension, okay? His ascending to the holy place. It says, verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not the horizontal tabernacle, 
not the horizontal temple that the high priest would enter into once a year. No, it says those are copies of, interestingly, it says they are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Christ entered into the ultimate holy of holies, into the throne room of God, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Okay, on our behalf. And then I want you to turn over to the next chapter. Okay, you may just need to look at the next page. Uh, chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. And then it says this, and here's another call to worship in light of this work of Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... Well, wait a second. and stop right there. Now, on Mount Sinai, of course, the people could not enter into the holy of holies. And they were told, not even touch the mountain, okay? Not even touch the mountain. But here, the call to worship is universal for all of God's people that we can have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain and that's a reference, of course, to that, that curtain that, that veiled that innermost chamber, okay? To think about it vertically, it was veiling the summit, all right? It was veiling the summit and saying, the only one who can go in there is, okay, initially it was Moses who was a type of Christ. And in the book of Hebrews, Moses and Christ are contrasted, compared. But eventually, Aaron, who was in the middle of the mountain, would get to come up and the high priest once a year would go behind that curtain, right? And the rest of the priests would minister in that middle section. On that curtain, as you've heard said before, were cherubim, okay, that God said were to be sewn into that curtain as a reminder that that way back into the Holy of Holies is the way back into the summit, okay? Back into the presence of God, back into fellowship with him. And what we're being told in Hebrews is that Jesus has entered that through the curtain, and it says there, that is through his flesh. That when Jesus died, the, the actual literal fabric curtain was ripped, we read, to show that access is now for all of God's people. But it was only ripped because the curtain of Christ's flesh was ripped, okay? That he died for us. And then it says... And since we have a great priest over the house of God, not Aaron or any of his descendants, but Christ, let us draw near. There's that call to worship. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right. So when we enter into the, the worship hall and we hear that call to worship, we need to understand that, that this is God bringing to mind his covenant dealings with his people all down throughout history. But we, do, we never need to think when we hear that call to worship that we are somehow back at Mount Sinai. And we'll look in just a minute at Hebrews 12, which brings this out explicitly. But we need to understand that when we hear that call each week, that is the Lord saying... Christ has entered into the summit that you can draw near now because of his blood. 
that you can run to worship, okay, the very thing for which you were made, that you have access into the Holy of Holies by virtue of Christ, your mediator, my mediator, and through his blood, right? And what, what is going on in Hebrews is that horizontal has now gone back vertical. There's no more need for that picture anymore of the tabernacle, of the temple, that when we gather, all right, we're not climbing up a physical mountain, but when we worship, being united to Christ, our worship ascends and we draw near to fellowship and commune with God at the summit, we might say. Because Christ has ascended the holy mountain of God because he is the one who had clean hands and a pure heart and who makes our hands clean and makes our hearts pure. And because we're united to him, we get to draw near. Okay, That's why we start with a call to worship. Uh, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 just to... We've read this passage multiple times because it, it figures so prominently in any discussion of worship. But Hebrews 12, and this is the, the contrast with Sinai. Okay? The, the verses before mention Sinai, but I want you to see verse 22. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion. Remember that third mountain, Mount Zion. But, <clears throat> but now it's heavenly Mount Zion. Okay? It's a global church. All across the world, people are gathering, assembling to praise and worship the Lord. You have come, when you gather for worship, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. All behind something that seems so simple as just a scripture reading at the beginning of the service. But we need to understand when we hear that read, that is God calling us to worship, to draw near, and we can do so because of everything we've quickly looked at this morning. Okay. And so Psalm 100, 1 to 2. We can, we can read this through the eyes of the work of Christ. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing, with joy. Right? Um, <clears throat> in keeping with all of this and in keeping with, with understanding God's covenant, um, this is a major principle in how we think about worship and how we structure um, our order of worship. And all this means is that it is a dialogue, we might say, going on in worship. Um, if, if you look back, you don't have to, but in Exodus 24 that we've already looked at, okay, you have there, okay, before God is setting this pattern for worship, you have the Lord speaking, okay? Moses, as kind of a representative, a mediator, going and relaying words to the people, and the people respond. They respond. There's this dialogue going on, right? There's a real sense in which in corporate worship, there is a reenactment, not of the work of Christ. We don't want to say that, as though we somehow begin the service as children of wrath, and through the service we are saved, and at the end of the service we're right again. No, we begin the service in Christ. Always keep that in mind, right? But there is a sense in which we are reminded of God's redemptive dealings with his people throughout the service, right? 
There's a sense in which our covenant relationship with the Lord is reenacted. Uh, if you still have Hebrews open, I look over at chapter 8. Just an interesting verse there in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. And this was speaking of all that horizontal stuff. The tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the high priest, everything. It says, they serve a copy, okay, the, the priests they're ministering, serve a copy and shadow of what? Of the heavenly things. So when, when God showed Moses everything on the mountain, God was saying, I'm going to give you a blueprint of something that you can see and touch. You can pick up and roll up and carry. But it is really a pattern of heavenly realities. Okay? And so when we gather for worship each week, what we're reenacting is spiritual, heavenly redemption that God has wrought among his people. Right? Um, this dialogical principle, this back and forth reminds us that just as in our salvation, okay, likewise in the covenant, likewise in worship, it is the Lord who initiates. Okay? We would never respond were it not for his initiation. He initiates and we respond as a testament of his grace and work in our lives. Um, the parts of, of the worship service can be grouped into two categories. Those that we might say are coming from the Lord's side in this dialogue and those coming from the side of the people. Uh, in that first group would be things like the call to worship, uh, the reading of the law or what we call the call to confession. Okay, we need to think about these as God speaking to us. The assurance of pardon. Once again, the Lord's word assuring us. The proclamation of the word and the benediction. And then coming from us, the singing of praise, uh, the prayers. Now, we, we don't all pray in the service out loud because that would be chaotic. That would not be edifying to go back to what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. But we have a representative, an ordained ruling elder, sometimes a teaching elder, who prays, but he is praying on behalf of the people to the Lord. Okay? Still that, that dialogue going on. Right? The confession of sin, the reception of the word. Right? We're not supposed to be passive as the word is being preached. We're to be actively engaging and listening. Okay? And the offering. So this is what is going on in worship. Okay? This the Lord initiating, the people responding. And as we go through it, we are reminded of, of wonderful gospel truths. You know, sometimes the, the preacher may have a text that is very hard, okay, and it hits you hard. And someone may think, well, I just need more grace in this text. Don't lose the whole worship service. Okay, because the gospel is being communicated in the entire worship service from the call to worship all the way to the benediction. Um, one block in our service, and I think I've mentioned this before on a, a Lord's Day morning in the service, where you really see this is when we have that scripture reading called a confession, then we respond with confession of sin. And then we hear a word of assurance right back. We've confessed our sin and we hear that back. You're forgiven in Christ. And then we rejoice in song. All using elements of worship that we have sanctioned from in God's word, but using them and ordering them in a way that reminds us of the gospel, reminds us of God's covenant. 
okay? Now, let me say something about the benediction or the good word or the word of blessing. Uh, what goes on at the end of the service, okay? And we have a response to that word. We sing a doxology. But the benediction is not a prayer. Sometimes, and this is a, a mistake that even a lot of pastors make, what is read for a benediction is not a benediction sometimes. It, it's a word of praise or a prayer. You seem like, that's a sticking point. Why, why be so particular? Okay? Because the benediction is, in that dialogue, a word from the Lord, a word of blessing at the end of the service. Now, once you turn to Leviticus 9, and we need to hear that word of blessing, okay? Because, as you turn to Leviticus 9, let me say this. God in his covenant in the Old Testament would speak about covenant curses and covenant blessings. Covenant curses and covenant blessings. And God's people, they wanted those blessings. That's what they wanted. But the only way to get those blessings is ultimately through a mediator. We know ultimately through Christ. Uh, you go to Leviticus 9. Let me get there. Leviticus 9, 22 to 23. And this is when God is the, the tabernacle set up, that, that initial horizontal form that God has given them. And they've done everything according to how God has said to do it. And then it says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands. That's one of the reasons why the, the minister in giving the benediction today lifts up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. Okay? And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now let me say this. What Moses and Aaron were doing that day is they were going in to offer sacrifice. Okay? They were going in to do what God had said, to, to offer shed blood all right, as a picture of what was required. And Going forward, as the high priest would enter that Holy of Holies once a year, he was really acting as a prototype of the second Adam, who was initially on that mountain in Eden, who, had he obeyed perfectly, would have procured blessing for all his posterity. But we know that he failed. Okay, And that high priest was a picture of the Adam to come, who would go in there and sacrifice would be offered, and then blessing would be given to the people. As though he was saying, because of shed blood, the covenant blessings are yours. And more importantly, because of the blood of something besides you, the covenant blessings are yours. Right? And then you look in Numbers chapter 6, and this is the one that, that we've probably heard the most. This is the Aaronic benediction. Okay? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then, verse 27, this is not part of the benediction. It says, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And I will bless them. It is the Lord's blessing upon his people. Uh, and as we're wrapping up here, why don't you turn to uh, Luke 24, okay? Uh, Luke 24, 
verses 50 and 51. And this is, as the second Adam, as Christ has come, as he has made the sacrifice, as he has shed his own blood, as he has conquered death, as he is getting ready to ascend into the Holy of Holies, what does he do? It says in verse 50, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands. That's the other reason why we lift up our hands. Give benediction. He blessed them. The Lord incarnate, blessing his people. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Okay? And then they worshipped. Right? This is the second Adam saying, the work is done. The work is done. And you receive the covenant blessings. Not because you've earned them, but because I've earned them. I took the curse and you get the blessing. And so we need to hear at the end of this service, at the end of every service, that word of blessing to remind us at the beginning that God covenantally calls us into worship and at the end that he gives us the covenant blessings. Okay, And we should crave to hear that blessing. Right, Second uh, Corinthians, that's the apostolic blessing that... that and you see in the, the letters of Paul, they typically end with that benediction. And those letters would have been read in public worship, ending with that word of blessing. Okay, That's the, um, um, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all is that one. Okay, Now, real quick, uh, and we're going to wrap up. Why don't you look at the sheets uh, with the... Um, the orders of worship on there. I just want to... You're welcome. I just want to point out a few things and then we're going to wrap up, okay, and be done. This is uh, maybe the earliest liturgy that we know of, and this is not exactly the order. I just wanted to show you that the elements that we've talked about, they're there. Uh, reading scripture, teaching, preaching from the word, public prayer, psalms and hymns, offering sacraments. Um, and there was also this understanding that there is what was called and what would come to be called the liturgy of the word and then the liturgy of the upper room, which was the giving of the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, that that was not a separate thing, but it's distinct, okay? We even recognize that today, that, that our service of the Lord's Supper, it's, it's not different, but there's obviously an added thing there that is very important, Okay. Um, if you look on uh, your sheet where it's the, the um, Reformation orders of worship, I, I printed this out for you just to give you a sampling from history, and it was going to be difficult uh, for me to display this here, okay? That the re Reformers were not looking to start from scratch, all right? Uh, they wanted, as best they could, to be historic in how they structured worship. Uh, but they wanted to do it in terms of the elements presented in God's word, and they wanted to do it in a way that, that spoke the gospel to God's people. Okay? And so here are some. You see uh, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, Farrell was the guy who was in Geneva before Calvin. Uh, Bullinger is um, a, a reformer we don't hear about much. And then you look and you see Calvin's there, okay, and Calvin's starts to really look a lot like ours, okay? Our order of worship, right? 
Um, he would begin with this Psalm 124, verse 8, which a lot of the Reformed churches still do. And let me mention these right here. As, as you move in, even moving on down the line in history, this is John Knox, okay, and his. And then the Westminster uh, Assembly in their directory for worship, okay, this is what they said, call to worship, and then you've got it on down to benediction at the end, okay, and then the various elements in there. Now, I want you to flip over, and this, is, this will be our last thing to say, okay? This is the American Presbyterian Church, and if you look at the dates at the top, by the time you get to 1946, 1970, for sure, and definitely 1983, you're getting into some very liberal environments. Now, we began this class by saying something about the importance of worship, and we looked at the Middle Ages and how there was a need for reform, and we looked at the PCUS and how there was need for reform. Now, what I want you to see is there's nothing necessarily wrong with these orders of worship, but when you get over into these far-right two columns, you will notice that the Lord's uh, Supper is there to be celebrated every week. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that can be a good thing. But why did they want to do it? You will also notice that the sermon, which in the first three columns is down on the bottom part of the page, is moved up to the top part of the page. And what was going on in the liberal churches is they said, this really doesn't need to be about preaching. We need, to, we need a little bit less preaching. Okay? We need a little bit less preaching. And we need a little bit less preaching. Okay? And they started crowding the worship with more and more things, and the thing that got crowded out was the preaching of God's Word. Very similar to what was going on in the Middle Ages. Okay? So, so just as we kind of come full circle, uh, just to show that whether it's the Middle Ages or whether you're talking about 1970 or 1983, the time doesn't matter, okay? Uh, we want to make sure that, that we're seeking to hold to worship as God calls us to worship. Now, let me say this. What I've laid out here is not in any way to say that that the Bible prescribes a certain ordering, per se, of all the elements of service, okay? But I do believe that we're being faithful to Scripture when we try to, in our ordering of service, which is what we do here, reflect the gospel, God's grace, and God's covenant. That as we go through worship, we realize that God is desiring to meet with us, we remember who he is, and we remember who we are in light of what he has done. Okay, uh, Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for worship. Uh, we would not be here. We would have no desire to worship you had you not moved toward us first. Indeed, we only love because you have first loved us. So help us to hope in Christ today of all days. Uh, Help us to have an awareness as we think about worship, as we move from element to element uh, of your grace. And we long for that day when we will be part of the church triumphant, when we won't need a written word, uh, uh, we won't need a written order of worship, when we won't need to consciously think about what the elements mean, but we will seamlessly worship you. And we thank you that if we know Christ, we already have a place there. In Jesus' name, amen.